the past is behind us, but it is also always within us, which means the past can feel dead and gone one moment, and then in the next, it can be very much living and breathing and here. My past came back to life in the form of a nightmare I hadn't dreamed in over 30 years. When I was a child, the nightmare always began the same way, with me standing at a river's edge, watching it rush by, brownly opaque with mud, swollen with storm debris, and foamy with turmoil. It was the kind of cataclysmic river in which a kid could disappear without warning, carried downstream to rot in some unpredictable destination. An old wooden bridge spanned the river. Though it had probably been a feat of humankind at its creation, its glory days were clearly behind it. The railings were gone. Most of the walkway had been torn away by storms long forgotten. The remaining planks were rotted and loose and spaced out, some resting where they were originally placed, some resting at angles. Large gaps in the walkway revealed the roiling waters just a few yards below it. Beyond the bridge, the other side of the river was always cloaked in fog. I had no idea what the fog hid, and yet, with the kind of certainty that can only be called faith, the kind of anticipation that can only be called hope, and the kind of longing that can only be called love, I wanted to find out. So I'd look down, preparing to take my first step, and I'd see on my feet a pair of worn-out blue sneakers with yellow trim. They were so dirty, the yellow looked almost brown and the blue looked almost black. The shoe on my right foot had a hole at the front of it, and my big toe protruded, covered by a dusty sock. Every night, the dream seemed to contain all its previous renditions, so I knew exactly how it was going to end. I knew I would step out onto the bridge, and the water would rise, and it would be impossible to escape it, and as it reached me, I would silently scream myself awake. However, I also knew I'd step out onto the bridge anyway yearning so much for the opposite shore that I was willing to endure the familiar terror at least one more time. Sometime around middle school, the dream seemed to die. I went to sleep one night and it didn't go with me. Weeks passed, no nightmare. Then months passed, then years. And somewhere along the way, I forgot about that old nightmare altogether. It turns out, though, it hadn't died. It had simply gone dormant. Or maybe it had died. And almost three decades later, on the cusp of my 40th birthday, it was resurrected. I don't think the future is ever predetermined, but I do think our futures are eventually determined by what we do with these moments of resurrection, especially when such moments cluster together, forming a sort of bridge in the middle of our life, one we may cross to new ground, or one we may turn back from, retreading the ground from which we came. My bridge was made of that old nightmare. It was also made of a secret I kept from everyone so long I eventually began to keep it from myself, and a secret that was kept from me for so long I never knew it existed. My bridge was made of a bunch of lost loved ones who came to life again within the magic of memory and the mystery of imagination. It was made of a god I once loved who went silent, and then one day started speaking to me again through those beloved ghosts of mine. In the Bible, Jesus dies on a Friday, and there's a lot of talk about that. Then he's resurrected on a Sunday, and there's even more talk about that. No one talks much about Saturday, though. Death and resurrection. No one talks much about the and that bridges the two. Sometimes, though, all of life can begin to feel like an and. Every day can start to feel like the Saturday between what happened to you and what you will or will not do with it. And once you recognize your bridge for what it is, you have to decide whether you'll cross it with no guarantees of surviving the passage, just the merest of hopes that it will deliver you to more graceful ground. It took me a long time to recognize my and, my Saturday, my bridge for what it was, too long. It began with a leg in my lap more than a decade before the nightmare resumed. My name is Elijah Campbell, and this is the story of my unhiding. Ladies and gentlemen, 
That is, that is that is the voice of our village elder, um, one of the great voices, maybe maybe the most familiar voice of all time here. Uh, if we had a Hall of Fame at Good, True, and Beautiful, it would be <laughs> my good buddy, Doctor Kelly Flanagan, reading the prologue. By the way, that that maybe you thought that was Carl Jung, maybe you thought that was like a Jungian analysis <laughs> happening there. Um, that is the prologue of his latest book, which is not nonfiction. It is fiction, and he is releasing it into the world, into the wild soon, and he has shared and been generous enough to come and share his time and his energy and his work with us again today. So, Brother Flanagan, my oh my, do we just hit stop now? Do we just, do we just hit stop now and go get this new book? Thanks for coming back on, my friend. You're, it is an honor to be back in the village, and my ego loves everything that you just said, and my soul probably does too, but it's just harder to feel it when you say things like that. Um, I, um, I'm, I'm so glad to be back. And yeah, absolutely. Everybody hit pause right now. Search The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell at wherever you like to buy books and go get a copy. The un- okay, now welcome back. That's Let's right. go. That's right. <laughs> the Unhiding of Elijah Campbell release date, by the way, is October... October 18th, 2022. Actually, it just became available on Audible as well, and Kindle will be available on that date as well. Man. Um, So I'm super excited and curious about this new world, this new process that you dug into. I think, I can't Mm. remember when it was that you and I first talked about this, but it was a couple years back when you said you had something kind of stirring in you. Mm -hmm. And of course, you and I have had the order disorder reorder conversation, which that prologue is swimming in. Um, yes. Where, like, I, I guess, let's just first start off with, like, what's it like to write fiction compared to nonfiction? Mm. Wow. Well, it's changed me more. <laughs> um, I'll tell you that. Uh, so there was a moment in in writing this book and we can talk about how we got to the point of my my publisher asking me for a novel, which was a huge surprise, but, um, we got to the point where I, I was writing a novel, something I've always wanted to do. I sent it off to my agent who was a little skeptical. She's like, you know, Flanagan, like most authors have about three or four novels in the drawer before they can write anything good enough to publish. And I was like, (laughs) I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm feeling this though. I want to give this a try. So I send it to her and she says, comes back with, wow, like, these characters are alive. They're real. Keep going. But then she said, but you know, the whole idea you had for the book. Um, and the idea, by the way, was to incorporate eight characters who each represented one of the Beatitudes. She said, I get the feel. Yeah. She said, I get the feeling this idea is becoming even more than that. And, and let, let the characters do what they need to do um, to tell the story you need to tell. And uh, it was, really hard to do. Hmm. Uh, And I started to have this like awareness that like, if I, if I can't quit controlling the characters in my fiction, how much am I trying to control the characters in my life? (laughs) You know, like if I can't let a a, a fictional character on a page do what they want to do today, how am I going to support my people in doing what they want to do? when it doesn't quite match what I had planned, you know? So I, I would say, I come away from having written fiction um, transformed in the sense of I'm keenly aware of the ways I'm trying to control everything and everybody more so than I've ever been and, um, and trying to release even more of that. So I think with a writing nonfiction, you're trying to lead a reader to a specific conclusion. 
right, to a specific learning. And so you're doing it step by step in a very controlled way. Whereas with, with fiction, it was, hey, uh, this character, you, ha- you had planned for them to leave the scene and go do this, but he didn't want to. Mm-hmm. He's got to go lick his wounds after this scene. No, no real person will go do that other thing. You, you thought he would, but he won't. He's got to go lick his wounds. And so, um, so yeah, the, the giving up of control of both the characters on the page and the characters in my life, that's been a significant change. So, so even, even in the imagination of 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 mm. there's there's something about the architecture of story right that even right. even as That's an right. author you're saying you can try to be the wizard of oz behind this thing and make it do certain things but at the end of the day in order for the world to be a world it has to be free to be That's a right. world in order for the book in order for these characters and i can't remember i've sat in a class i've sat somewhere at a conference where a writer said and i'm sure someone said this these are not my words, so whoever you are, forgive me for plagiarizing. <laughs> but as an author, you've got to put these characters through hell and see what they do, right? Like, did, 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 mm. did you, did you kind of see, like, does that ring true? I mean, is there some truth to that? There's absolutely truth to that. And one of the things I'd say in having written this first fictional book is that putting a character through hell is as much about telling the story of a character who's still trying to solve their problem in the same old way. Mm. You know, they think, Oh, if I try to, I try to solve it in the same way again, this time it'll come out different, differently. And um, the really exciting point in any story is when the the, the character finally gets it, they're going to have to become something new and do something new to solve their problem. And they begin to realize they have a, it's not even the problem they were trying to solve. Mm. Right. Um, gosh, I, I, I thought I was trying to solve the problem of success, but what I'm really trying to serve, solve is the problem of authenticity mm-hmm. and openness and flow, you know? And so, um, so to me, that's, that's what hell is for a character is, uh, trying to solve the wrong problem in the same way that's never worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Oh my gosh. What a huge idea. The, this idea that if we never change our approach and we just keep getting what we're getting, and we're mm-hmm. using words like, I'm just fighting fires. I'm, I've got so much right. headwind. Life is all uphill. Uh, I'm just fighting battles, right? Like that we, we use yes. these words. We may be quite responsible for this hell that yes. we're living. Not something else yes. causing it to us, but rather new eyes, fresh, fresh approach, yes. a different way of seeing someone else we must become to find mm. our way out of there. Interesting, so wild that you got this from writing. I know, it well, in, in the character of Elijah, you know, I think one of the things that, the feedback I've gotten so far that was powerful about the book is he's so well-intentioned and he's so good-hearted mm-hmm. and he's, he's solving all the wrong problems in all the wrong ways for his people. Mm-hmm. He's doing it for them, he sincerely is. And, um, and yet it's serving a protective function for him, the way he stays hidden and the way he protects through hiding. And so um, the, the thing he discovers over the course of the story is that the problem isn't what he thought it was. It's, it's hiding. And mm-hmm. he's got to learn how to unhide himself. So, um, so, yeah, it was exciting to discover that over the course of the novel. So even the protagonist right? This is, mm-hmm. this is Donald Miller. Uh, this is hero's journey 101. Like the protagonist is, is he who knows what he wants and must overcome conflict to get it. Um, yes. And I'm just sitting here thinking about what you learned through, by going through this process. Like 
it's always an inside job. Not even for us, yes. but even these characters that you're coming up with, the process of getting them to the aha that the gates of hell are locked yes. from the inside. It's interesting you mentioned that Don Miller definition because I love that character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. But I think I've learned that in a in a in a good story, if it's going to feel real, it's going to feel like our lives, right? It's a, a character who wants something and is, is trying to overcome conflict to get it, but they fail so many times, they finally realize they actually, they need to want something different. Hmm. Like the, the want has to change over the course of the story, or it doesn't feel like a real story. We can all relate to that, right? Yeah. Like the thing that we want in the first half of our life has to give away to some bigger, more expansive, deeper want in the second half of our life, or it's just doing the first half over and over again and trying to... Yeah. So yeah, I think there's that shift in the want that is really important in a good life and a good story. Could you have written this book 10 years ago? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> I have not been asked that question. Uh, absolutely not. Yeah. Um, I, I've wanted to write a novel since I was probably, I mean, I, I, I tried to start several novels in graduate school. I've been wanting at that point already for years to write one. Um, I don't think I could have written this novel until the very moment that I did, um, which is uh, it's sort of a sense of blessing and grace in that, that mm -hmm. it, it arrived when, when I was ready to receive it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's, let's get a little tactical here. And I, I may be okay. the only one geeking out in this in the room today, but that's okay. okay. <laughs> um, one of these days I'm going to write something We're gonna, it's going to happen. Um, yes. How, how did, what is it, what did Picasso do in the studio? I mean, or do you have note cards? Is there a storyboard? Is there mm. caricature images of who Elijah looks like and other characters? Like, what was your really nitty gritty yes. process of, of putting it together? That's a great question. I mean, I, um, and this goes back to the issue of control. Like, I think so we do have to honor the structure of story mm -hmm. like the the structure you know the hero's journey the the 12 main beats in a hero's journey i think you have to honor them mm -hmm. um it's 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 it is the formula to what makes our lives feel meaningful it's the formula to what makes the story feel real and meaningful so you have to honor those what i learned is that i should never i should have a general sense of how this is going to go but i should never plot more than about two hero's journey beats ahead <laughs> Because it's a waste of time. Yeah. Because after that, the, the 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 characters have done things and made decisions that I didn't plan for. That mean well, they could never do this next. Like I, the something I'm working on right now. I I had planned for one of the characters to be off at college by this point in the book, and she decided to drop out. I didn't know she was going to do that. Right. So it's like that letting go of control. So I, I'm. I, I try to honor those beats of the hero's journey, but try not to get too far ahead of myself and let the characters sort of guide the way. Yeah. Did, did you ever stand up from the, the, the computer, the, the keyboard, the, however you did it with your hands on your head? Like, I cannot believe he or she just yeah. did this. I'm kind of yeah. screwed for the next 30 days trying to piece this one back together. <laughs> <laughs> Um, probably not the second part because it seems like every time that's happened, it solves a problem yeah. that I didn't know how to, to solve in the story. It's like, Excel oh, it, it, that. It, it accelerates serendipity. That's the phrase, Tony Shea phrase. That, 
That's right. That's yeah. accelerate serendipity. It's a great way to put it. Yeah, I remember specifically it was a Sunday morning and some would say I wasn't at church, but for me, there's hey, nothing more spiritual right. than sitting yeah, down and writing on a Sunday morning. Altar. Right. And uh and I was writing a scene where Elijah is I won't uh offer any spoilers, but he's in a conversation and the person, and this is a critical moment in the story in his healing process, and the person says something back to him that just sent chills through my body um, in a way like could not have imagined that's how this conversation was going to go today. But it set, it, it set the direction for the rest of the book in a powerful way that sort of cleared up some, some spots, some, some blind spots that I didn't really know where the story was going to go. So, yeah, I mean, when those moments happened, to me, that, like, that's as fun as it gets when that happens as a writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I kind of wonder, like, do you kind of think about it when you leave the house, like, and you're just driving? Like, this story mm. is going on in the back of your psyche. You know, I'm thinking, like, say I'm watching Yellowstone, right? And I'm like, okay, I got a new episode tonight. I wonder what's going to happen. <sighs> I'm almost wondering yes. if there's something that similar happens from an author's standpoint of, like, you're just eating a sandwich somewhere, and all of a sudden this new idea character something happens um yeah it's like do you write it in your pocket do you speak it into a phone like what do you what do you do i i, I speak it into a phone as fast as i can um, <laughs> when inspiration so I, and, strikes get it down yes get it down um the even though a lot of the book a lot of the story shifted over the course of the writing of it uh the last scene didn't um i was riding a stationary bike um listening to, and this was early in the writing of the book, listening to the song The Wild by Mumford and Sons. Okay. And the entire last scene of the book presented itself in choreography with the song hmm. to the point where I could see like when a character was going to move on a certain beat of the song and do this and that. And that last scene stayed exactly the way it was. So what I sort of knew was that the whole book was going to, like, well, how are they going to get to that last scene? You wow. know? And, and so for me, it was... Uh, surprise about how that happened myself exactly any 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 taps on the shoulder in the middle of the night in your sleep oh gosh i gotta write this down i gotta speak this three o'clock is my favorite hour to wake up with an idea yeah yeah. um there's a japanese proverb about the three o'clock hour have you heard it no what is it it's it's something like when when something something whispers you awake don't deny it or something like it there's there's something that happens around three or four in the yes. morning, and it says, "Don't say no to it. Get up and listen." I'll have to find a couple times. A couple of times in the last six months, I've had that waking, and I have not woken up to record the thing, and I regret it so much. It's never there. Yeah, just yeah. never there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, so, you and I before the call were, were chatting through uh, one of our metaphorical ether algorithms that you and I swap every time mm-hmm. we get together. And it was this idea that like reality minus expect expectations kind of equals. Mm. And I wish I knew what the equals was. We got to report back to that, mm. but I wanted to hear you process um, with your background as a counselor, with your background of sitting with so many people now mm. taking this whole new approach leaving one style of writing, entering a new one. I mean, it's like hot water to cold water, like a right. t- totally different right. thing. What did you learn about 
expectation? What did you learn mm. about what expectation, what, what is, what does it keep us from? Right? Like, um, oh, I think yeah. that's a, I think yeah. I'm, I'm not doing a great job of asking this question, but I, I'm sure there's a consistent thread that you have seen sitting in front of thousands and thousands of people and stories and seeing mm. what expectations do not only to these characters that we write as authors, mm. but, but what also happens in our lives with expectation. Wow. It's interesting. I had, when you asked that question, it made me think of an experience I had. It was, I think it was probably early summer. Um, I have a monthly spiritual direction call and I sometimes take it, take it in places that are sort of thin places for me, you know, where the, the material and the spiritual could sort of really come clearly together. So I was at, the, I was at this, uh, on this bench in a park in my hometown along the river. And we're sitting there and we're talking and my spiritual director was saying something. And I realized I had quit listening to him. And I said, Hey, hold on a second. I'm distracted. There's this bald Eagle and it's across the river and it's like flying back and forth in like a 50 yard, maybe stretch just sort of flying back and forth. I said, it's weird. It doesn't look like it's hunting. I don't know what it's doing. It looks confused. And he said, I don't, I think it's the opposite of confused. And we should just watch it. I think this is a gift for you. And I said, oh, okay. Let's just watch it. And momentarily, it quit flapping its wings and it just put its wings straight out. And it started to corkscrew, like up into the sky without ever flapping its wings once mm -hmm. until it was like a tiny, a tiny dot way up high. And I, I said to him, I said, this is what happened. And he said, you know, Kelly, you think you need to flap really hard all up and down the river in order to get where you want to go. But the eagle knows there's always an updraft right here in this space. And it just needs to sort of be present to the space mm -hmm. until it finds the updraft. And then it's going to get higher. It's going to go higher on that updraft than it ever could on its own, you know, energy. And, wow. and I think like expectations are like flappings of wings, mm -hmm. you know, I want this to happen. I'm trying to control the future in this way. Um, I want you to do this. I want me to do that. And in the meantime, we're sort of missing the updraft. We're missing the flow, uh, which could carry us in, in directions that we can't even fathom, but probably in much better places and with less energy if we could just sort of learn to trust that flow. Um, and so I just find myself going in and out of trust all the time, <laughs> in and out of trust. And and the flow is lovely and beautiful and takes me wonderful places when mm -hmm. I can trust it. And when I start flapping my own wings, yep. I usually have to go, oh, wait, this is what I'm doing again. Yep. It's time to just put my wings out and trust again. So that's what I, that's what I thought of when you mentioned the expectations, reality and expectations. Ex expectations block the great allowing, right? Expectations block the great allowing. That, yeah. That... Um... Yeah, if we good. can, if we can become students of allowing, um, mm. then, and if we believe that at the core, at the mm. bedrock level, that, that we do, uh, live and breathe and have our being in the midst of love. If, if we can, if we can just ground ourselves in that and allow yes. that, I think, I'm not so sure expectations melt away, but they do become less and less interesting. You know, it's, it's, it, it, you, yeah. you, you kind of, and I told you this before our call that I live in that future tense all the time. Yes. Right? And, and even mm -hmm. your, 
Yes. Even this prologue is like this dance between the before and after the death and resurrection. There is yes. this great and. This is, yes. this is a great theme of our lives that life happens in the and. Life happens in the now. Mm. Um, and, you know, we haven't been taught a lot about allowing, right? Especially in a grinded <laughs> out America, build it, scale it, you do it, Ooh, flap your wing culture. Um, yes. And I think we we expect things or we we try to shape a future that is without suffering i mean i don't know too many people who are going i i want to create a future that has suffering in it but i just i think when you get a little bit of a taste of allowing you start to realize the real suffering is in resisting what is and being obsessed with creating it to be just your way you know expecting certain things and that the allowing is freedom from all that, yep. which is peace and joy. Absolutely. God shows yeah. up as your life, as Father Richard says. God shows up as your life. God shows up as your life. Yes. Uh, and you can either allow it or you can fight it. I just, I just thought God also shows up as my wife. God shows up as your wife. <laughs> yeah, he does He does yeah, that too. She's, she's, a, yeah. she's a great teacher. She, she doesn't let me get away is, with it. She is the image of the trinitarian flow you, you can tell kelly we, we talked about her today <laughs> kelly if you're listening know, if yeah. you were listening kelly you are the image of the infinite water wheel the perfect constant <laughs> giving constant receiving giving again yes you are um oh my goodness so uh i guess a theme maybe that uh, you and i've mm. had a lot of the order disorder reorder conversations yeah um yeah. and my my senses are you can tell a lot about the end of a book from the beginning of a book, mm. Um, mm. and and maybe that's not true. I don't know, um, but I I talk to me about what you learned about the and the now the mm. the the Saturday, um, yeah, and maybe yeah. and even and even take. What you learn, I, I, again, I'm always going to lean on you from a counseling standpoint, mm. too. But I think, mm. I think a lot of our suffering comes from either just centering down, pouring concrete around our ankles in the death and burial, mm. never getting to that resurrection, yeah. or always thinking that we're another resurrection away from something that we need to be, whereas there's actually something right. in that intermediate space that's that's quite necessary yeah well you know i mean this the the seeds of this novel happened for me way back in 2014 when uh i wound up on the today show with my daughter yep. after writing a, a letter to her words from a father to his daughter from the makeup aisle and i was like this this is this incredible experience like I and mean, everybody had read that letter that couple of weeks. And now we, we were flying into New York city and the woman on the plane next to me says, what are you coming to town for? And I told her, she's like, Oh, you're the guy who wrote the letter. I mean, it was like, it was wow. my 15 minutes of, of fame. It was pretty heady. <laughs> um, so we're now that created sort of like a midlife moment. It created an and sort of moment mm-hmm. for me because I grew up in a small town, Dixon, Illinois. Um, I grew up and I should talk about this in lovable came out of my childhood with sort of the sense that I'm not very interesting. Um, people are sort of going to get bored with me and leave me and leave me alone. And, and so the natural 
sort of response for a young person in that situation is, well, I need to become interesting Mm -hmm. to keep people's attention and keep them around. That's not going to happen in Dixon, Illinois, Mm -hmm. right? Rural, rural Illinois. So I've got to find more significant experiences, bigger towns. And so here I am, I'm at the, I'm in the big apple. I'm on the today show couch. Like I've literally found the the most significant, right? The apex. And it creates this, this sort of midlife moment. And I think the reality is we all have midlife moments over and over again where we did it all. We did everything that we, we played all the, all the rules. We played the game. We got to where we thought we were going to get that was going to satisfy us and take away all the, you know, the mess and the, the pain. And it doesn't do it. And, and I think, I think that's where we face a choice. We can either turn that midlife moment into a midlife crisis or a midlife awakening. Mm-hmm. And, and a crisis happens when you double down on everything you did to make you sad, you know, to try to be satisfied, to try to be peaceful, right? All so the it's expectations. Like, okay. Yeah. All the expectations. Uh, money will make me happy. Yeah. So, and, and I've, I've got all the money I thought I needed and it's not doing it. So I should make more money and that'll make me happy. Uh, or, I thought relationships would make me happy and they're not quite doing it. So I'll divorce this one and get a newer one. Or I thought toys were going to make me happy and they're not. So I'll get better toys, you know, the new car. Like to me, that's the midlife crisis is the doubling down on the things you thought were going to make you happy. And a midlife awakening is when you go, oh, like I have to develop a different relationship to happiness, a different Mm -hmm. relationship to peace, a different relationship to satisfaction. I have to find other ways to relate to those things and other ways of um, settling into those things. I wouldn't say pursuing. I think the word pursuing starts to go by the wayside. There are ways of settling into those things. And, um, and so for us in 2014, that was, it was wild. It was like, let's move back to Dixon, Illinois. Let's go back to the town you thought you needed to leave in order to be significant and interesting and actually enjoy the satisfaction and peace that comes from living there. And, and the town started to change me. I realized that my ego wanted to leave Dixon for significance, but my soul has always felt most at home here wow. in this little town. I get emotional when I talk about this place. There's a, there's a sacred thinness to this town for me that I can't quite uh, explain. And so I started to think about writing a book that would, um, would be about a psychologist who has a mid, turns his midlife moment into a midlife crisis. And his wife basically says, Hey, I'm leaving you. I'm going back to live with my mom and dad in this little town. And you want, if you want to stay with me, you got to come with me. So he does. And he starts practicing therapy in the little town. And his, his first eight clients are the eight beatitudes. Essentially his hmm. characters represent the beatitudes and they teach him about wow. uh, how to have a midlife awakening. And, and the, the title for that novel that never happened is the shrinking life. You know, two mm-hmm. two meanings: the shrinking mm-hmm. therapist mm-hmm. and then the shrinking the shrinking of the ordinary way. But that's that's like that's where it all started for me mm-hmm. was that we all have an aunt. We have ants over and over and over again. Do we go back and do the death thing over and over again, or do we move forward in the resurrection? Mm-hmm. Right. That's what that's what this bridge metaphor is about in this book. Do we try to cross that bridge, or do we just go back and go ah? It, interesting what's on that other shore but let's go back over here and keep doing the same thing so um so for me that idea was the genesis of my desire to write a novel when we first moved back to this little town and it morphed into something different but some of the themes are are sort of still in it and the the book 
the the core of the book takes place in a little town, an awful lot like mine still. So love it, I love it. Uh, and yeah. maybe there's something too. You know, I think the further you get down the rabbit hole of wisdom, you know, I use the phrase all the time, like the the, the mundane is magic. And I think that, mm, that you yes. you in you are a rich soul when what appears on the outside to be a very simple town um, mm. becomes you're at the end of the ladder, right? You're, you were here all along and I never knew it. Like the, this idea that yeah. like just right before us at hand, and, and you start using phrases and words like the kingdom is now, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is at hand. That's right. Heaven on earth. What? That's, right. That's just a chicken fried steak on a plate with gravy. I know, but it's heaven <laughs> on earth. You don't you don't have to go to the Today Show, right? right. To to right. actually find yourself grounded and centered in a place of joy. I saw a chart last night in a book I was reading. It's expectations and and it's it's in your starting at 18, your expectations of like where you should be and your thoughts on life, mm. they just, they start skyrocketing. And then at like 30, mm. at 30, your expectations nosedive because yeah, now you're starting to get this taste of like, oh, that isn't what I was, I was yeah. told it was going to be. Um, and it isn't sure. until this chart, it showed like, it isn't until somewhere in the mid 40s to mid 50s that your what and and oh by the way you also it also says like what you expected life to be in your mid 50s at 18 you thought it was going to mm -hmm. be low and it actually starts going up because you've kind of you've tasted you've seen um you know mm -hmm. you realize that everyone that you thought was thinking about you actually was never thinking about you um <laughs> that's right and uh and you're home free and you're you're like well i'm, you're I'm a free, free man now um, <laughs> all the games I thought we were playing, I, there, I'm not, we don't have to play those games. We, uh, we launched my oldest Aiden, who's now 19. Um, he has been telling us since eighth grade that he does not want to go to college. He wants to be a comedian. And so he moved into Chicago. He's uh, doing 19, it. On the day of his 19th birthday, he's doing it and he's going for it. And he has all sorts of, I mean, you, you can imagine Yep. Wild expectations. But how would you get started, right? How would you get started if you didn't have those wild hopes and expectations? That's no right. one would get started. I, I think they're there for a reason. That's right. And we learn how to relate to them differently. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and they are necessary. Yeah. Please hear me, you know, or hear us in that dialogue. That yeah. This this um, it it's the the container trying to build that container. Yeah. That's that's a thing. We all do it. Um, but yeah. it's, uh, at some point you're introduced to the contents and you're, you're listening. To... Yes. Go ahead. Yes. That's good. I'm sorry to interrupt you. That was rude. No, I was just saying, um, you know, at some point you realize that that there is a place in you that is total gift, never needed to be built is always right. okay. Is always not offended. Uh, is always mm. at peace is always at rest. And that's available back to the back to the um, allowing conversation, right? Like yes. we have to become students of allowing so that we can access the infinite yes. that's within our finiteness. I think maybe that's how I would say that's right. Um, go yes. ahead. Well, and I think to what you were saying, oh, you were just sort of highlighting to those listening 
it made me think of something I heard Rob Bell say recently, like when you're thinking, oh man, I tried that for so long and it didn't work and I made a mistake or I failed. And his response to that, yeah, how, how else were you going to learn that it doesn't work? That's right. Like the only way to find out that it doesn't work is to try it and to discover that it doesn't work. And, and so um, the only way to try grandiose sorts of expectations is to try them out That's right. and to see how test far everything. you can get and test it out. And the, and then the question is when you start to realize that, uh, Oh, I'm doing the same thing over and over again and get the same result. Um, can you flex? Can you adapt? Can you, mm-hmm. can the ego at that point release those expectations mm-hmm. and expand into something that is, uh, is different and I hate to say better, but, Freer at least. Yeah, more whole. Yeah, 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 for sure. I I think success is the byproduct of a ton of failures. Yes. Um, That that even getting, I wish someone would have would have told me to get comfortable with failure faster, Mm -hmm. Um, and that Mm -hmm. I'm and that who I think I am is actually not on the line. Um, that, right. that, that failure isn't saying something about me. It's saying something about the approach. It's saying something about, right. uh, uh, the way that I was doing whatever I was trying to get across the proverbial finish line or whatever that may be. Well, and even the word failure in itself even has expectations built into it yes. in judgments, you know, like, um, I've heard people say, I don't use the word failure anymore. I use the word pivot, right. Or I use the word step or I use the word yeah. um, change, but but failure suggests that, yeah, there's, there's a we, judgment we, call. We, we identify with that word. It becomes identity. We identify. Right. That's right. I really appreciate the way, the way that you highlighted the word allowing because it's, um, it's not a word that I've thought about a lot with regard to this book, but if there's a trajectory for Elijah in this book, it's towards a great, great allowance. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and I will carry that, that word forward with me. Um, I, we had one of our launch team members said one of the themes of the book is, um, you can't actually let go of your past, but you can learn to dialogue. Um, and that has an allowing feel to it too, because we want to let go of our past, right? Because we don't like it. There's something about it that is painful. And so, there's an allowing and saying, no, it's with me. Like it's mm-hmm. always in there. Um, but I can learn to dialogue with it in a way that is redemptive in the present. To me, that's, that's the hope. And that's another way, another way of allowing. What is a, uh, let's, let's go clinical here, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. What is a, sure. uh, a stance, a posture, a practice, a mantra, uh, mm. that can help across a universal uh, no matter no matter what mm. has transpired in one's life, if they feel if they feel defended, if they feel mm. in fight mode, if they feel uh, frustrated, um, mm. do you, do you have a stance, a posture, a way, a mantra that can help one allow what is to be what is? Mm. Oh, yeah, that's a fantastic question. So. Um... In a, in a week or so here, I'm hosting Companion Camp out in Utah. It's nice. one of the things we're going to be talking about. We're talking about this. So in, in the first session, we're going to talk about um, how to recognize in your body the moment in which your ego activates. 
And, and, and the sort of the, the mantra for that session is going to be the tightening is our teacher, right? When you, when you locate that tightening in your body, right? And I don't know where it is for you. For me, I always do this because it feels like two doors just slamming shut in yep. my chest. Yep. yep. For some people, it's the gut. For some people, it's shoulders, jaw. I've never heard anybody say that, that uh, when they felt scared and protected, their, their toes cramped up. It's always somewhere like, you know, like gut, gut <laughs> to energy. like about temple. Probably because yeah. that energy so, needs to, needs to, needs to fly. It needs to run, right? It can't go to it the It needs to, that's right. It needs, it needs, it, it is, it's energy that's needing to flow again. And we're tightening up against it. We're going, I, I've experienced this before and I prefer not to experience it again. So boom, tighten up, resist it. So one of the practices I've developed over the last couple of years and, uh, is, and, 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 and listeners may not be able to see this, but when I feel that, when I notice that tightening in me, uh, I do, if I can do it manually, I do it. I hold out two hands, one a closed fist, and the other one like a stop sign. Hmm. And I ask myself, what am I attached to in this moment? What am I resisting? What am I attached to and what am I resisting? Because the ego is always either attaching to something yep. or resisting something. Yep. It's saying, I want life to be this way. I don't want life to be this way. Yep. And it's remarkable when you start to do this because what you can do is you can populate a list of your personal preferences. I prefer to experience these things in life yep. and I prefer not to experience yep. these things and my, my ego's job is to sort of try to take my life in the direction of my preference list and away from my non-preferences, uh, which is great until like somebody you love is behaving in a way you don't prefer. And then all of a sudden you're resisting them, right? Or attaching to them being different and it creates great chaos. So anyways, I feel the tightening in my chest. I hold out my hands, closed fists. What am I attaching to in this moment? What am I resisting? And then I actually engage in a physical practice when I can of opening up my arms very wide, actually trying to open that space there in the center of me and taking a big deep breath into it. And then just asking, what if I just received this? What if I just experienced this? Sign of the cross. And I'm literally in the sign of the cross at that moment when I do that. Um, I actually am increasingly moved by the image that the cross gave yep. to us. Yep. Um, I mean, the ultimate form of surrender, right? Um, and, and I've, I've been so encouraged by looking back at the, at the gospels and the way Jesus went through this ebb and flow of closing and opening too. like, you know, his mom's like, Hey, they're out of wine, make it for us. And he's like, Nope. Right. He closes, resists his life, says, Nope. And then eventually he opens it. Mm-hmm. Right. And the, the woman, the woman, the Galilean one says, Hey, heal, heal my daughter. She's demon possessed. And he doesn't even answer her. closed, you know, and then she, she besieges him more. And his response is, hey, I didn't come for your, your people. I came for my people, the Jews. He's close to her. And finally, she beseeches him again. He opens his heart and heals her dog, right? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane three times he has to do it. Mm-hmm. Any other way but this, I'm closed. And then he opens. Any other way but this, but your will be done. And then finally on the cross, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? I'm closed to the loneliness of this experience. And then finally, but into your hand. I can my spirit. So even Jesus, all the way to the end, is finding his way to this open-hearted sign of the cross, this this, uh, this receiving of what life is sending him. So I just, that's the practice that I've been doing. Yeah. Um, and I've created a, created fractionally less chaos in my life as a result of it, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so attachment, resistance, the invitation is response and detachment. Um, yeah. you know, yeah. so, so are you reactive? You're probably not allowing, 
are you attached? Right. You're probably yes. not allowing. God you're shows, probably not allowed. That's why I love that. Yeah. Yeah. God shows yeah. up as your life. Um, God shows up as your life. Yeah. And the yeah. sign of the cross too, being, being this, this promise of paradox, right? Like that is the, that is the, that is history's moment of and, you know, mm, that is the, that is a, the, right. that is the historical space of knowing and not knowing that is the historical, uh, uh, human and divine. That's the historical, yes. you are part form, but you are part formless. Like this great yes. announcement of, and how on earth we've missed it. My, oh my, mm. <laughs> I don't know, mm. but, uh, it, it is, this will heal the world when we reclaim it. Mm. And um, so good. See, you, you do need to write that book. I, yes, I, I did, resist I using <laughs> the title. The title that you told me for that book, I resist using it all the time because I just want to write it all the time. Just the title. Can we it's do? Gotta be, can it's we gotta do be writing camp in Utah where you kind of help 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 me? Uh, oh help, man, help me! I do well speaking. It's when I start typing it, it gets. It's like oh, that's kind of close. Well. Um, Actually, you're you're in good company there. I mean, think about all the guys who it, it's I think mostly guys who just had their talks turned into books. You know, yeah. you got like I think I think Father Roar started that way. Alan Watts. Um, Ooh, Alan there's Watts. some others in there. I can get down with some Roth, yeah. Watts and Roar. You know that. Right. Um, That's right. So so you're in good company. Speak it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll listen. The Great Allowing. Our new fiction author, Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Uh, dude, I'm proud of you. I'm thankful for you. Thank you. Um, I hope you. that, you. uh, I hope that this thing creates some waves that you can enjoy and, um, mm. hope that, uh, the, the fruits of it, uh, do things far beyond what you could ever imagine. Allow it to be better mm. than you could ever imagine. That's one of our mantras here. I appreciate that. I've, the, the most meaningful feedback I've gotten so far sort of is distilled down into readers who have said something, something was stuck inside of me. Like mm -hmm. something about my, my story and my past was stuck inside of me and it started to flow again during this book and I was able to release something and I feel a lightness that I haven't felt in a long time. And, um, and honestly, if I could, uh, if I could hear that maybe once a month, I think that, that's right. That, that would be enough. That'd be enough for my soul. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just one story like that changing as a result of reading. It. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the space to talk about. It. This is my, this is my first chance to talk about it on a podcast, man. I love you're, it. you're always number one. Here I we are you for that. Here we yeah. are. Super grateful for it, man. And as you know, thankful for you and your work in the world. And, um, for our listeners, if you feel stuck, if there's some, if there's a block within you, uh, perhaps a novel is a good change of pace, and uh, comes out October 18th. Is that right? Comes out October October 18th. You October got it. October 18th. All right. Make sure you guys go get a copy. Kelly, keep us on speed dial. We'll have you back anytime. Mm -hmm. Ashton, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.